welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Good evening, everybody. It's great to be with you. I love this church. I love the partnership we have with this church. It's been a great weekend. Counted a great privilege, great joy. When we arrived in Sydney about two weeks ago, about 10 days ago, I said to Sue, we had one evening in this hotel, I said, we better acclimatize to Aussie culture. So uh, we went through the movies that were available, and there's this thing called Red Dog. Have you seen it? It's about the outback. I said, that must be it. Oh, I was culture shock, I'm telling you. First 15 minutes, didn't know what I was watching. And then when I arrived in Adelaide, just to make sure that I was fully acclimatized, Tony took me to a soccer game. We don't really do soccer. I know we did the World Cup, but we play rugby and other things. I've never seen soccer moms before. It's radical. They put two lines next to the field that they have to stand inside. I met two soccer moms, Joe and Lee, and they're here tonight. You can give them a round of applause. They opened my eyes in terms of what Aussie soccer is all about, the socceroos. So I've had, I feel like I've been um, turned inside out, really, and uh, really loved every minute of it. This morning, I spoke about the journey we have in Christ. The Hebrew word for discipleship is chokhmah, it literally means a journey. And so what we spoke about is that that journey might wind up in the new heaven, new earth one day, but essentially it's becoming more like Jesus. That journey is into Christ. Paul said in Galatians 4.19, I struggle and I strain till Christ be formed in you. The prayer of the great apostle was that the church become more and more like Jesus. That's what we had a look at this morning. The question I want to ask tonight is how? It's all very well to say, once you're saved, God wants by his sovereign grace and somehow to change you so that you're a different person when he's finished. But how? How does that happen? Let's take marriage as an example. God wants to take a wife that he saves and rescues. He wants to transform her. He wants to take a husband, transform him, take families, transform them. One of the joys I have as a pastor is marrying people. I've married people on very unusual places. I've married people on golf tees. I've married them on boat jetties. I don't know if you do that here in in, uh, Australia. Uh, The best one I did was in this lake. There were swans around. Uh, There was a string quartet going. Uh, The guys were sitting there with Cuban cigars. I thought the mafia was about to come any minute. Uh, Nobody at that wedding was saved at all. It was a moment to preach the gospel. But one thing is common out of every wedding I do is that everybody present believes that it'll end happily ever after, right? As they drive off, and I don't know in this culture, you've got cans drifting behind the car, just married on the windscreen. 
she's dreaming of a white picket fence, the little thing she's been dreaming about since she was a little girl. He's thinking, never have to spend another lonely night alone. They're in bliss. And, but everybody's thinking, this thing's permanent. I don't know what you say when someone gets married here with the ring, but in our neck of the woods we say, I give you this ring as a symbol of the covenant we've entered into today. May our love be as eternal, eternal as this ring. We say things like, can anybody in this room show any just cause why they may not be lawfully married? There's like a hush. In fact, there's a legal requirement in South African law. To speak now or to shut up forever is basically what we're saying. What? Because why? Because it's marriage. We want it to go till death us do part. Faithful only with you as long as we live. We've got the deal. But the more painful part of being in the job that I'm in is that it doesn't always happen that way. And so the perfect husband who even those sometimes who've met Jesus, they don't transform really in that direction. Why? Well, there's an assault on marriage. There's an assault on, on, on your Christ identity. There's an assault on families. I was driving my family through the main highway of Johannesburg. That's our really big city in South Africa. And I had my kids in the back. I got a couple of teenage daughters and an eight-year-old son. We're driving. There's not too much to see in Johannesburg. High-rise buildings, mine dumps. I was on this main freeway. It was about five lanes of traffic. I see this massive billboard up in front of me of a naked woman facing the opposite direction, fortunately, with a G-string on and stilettos. That's all she had on. So I'm thinking, this is bad. We're from the country. I'm from a village, town, city, place. Uh, country bumpkins. I'm thinking, how am I going to explain this to my kids? I'm, I'm feeling assaulted. It's like I'm, I'm, I've come to the big city and now I've got to explain stuff to my kids. I'm thinking off ramp. Thinking how there wasn't one, so I said, "Hey kids, look at these mind dumps. Have you ever seen a mind dump?" <laughs> and my, my kids are like, "Next minute, my little eight-year-old boy at the back says, "Hey dad, look at that girl." I'm thinking, "Oh no, I'm bracing myself." He says, hey, Dad, Dad, looks like she's had a wedgie. (laughs) Oh, my. The innocence of youth, eh? But the fact is, my family is assaulted. And the role models we have, Bill Clinton, no matter how good a president he was, will always be remembered with a certain lady. As is the great Tiger Woods. Our sports stars of our country have recently hit the headlines. We're assaulted with these things, and it's painful to watch. And the scary thing is, is that the church, no matter how snooty we might get, to think we've got got it all together, the church is not immune. And you know what I love about the Bible? The Bible doesn't hide that. The Bible doesn't pretend that we're immune and above all this. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says there is a form 
of debauchery in you that not even the pagans will entertain. I'm not just talking about promiscuity and sexual morality. We get tempted and dragged away from Christ-likeness by all sorts of avenues. Uh, Fraud. The classic fraudster in the New Testament was Judas. I remember when my kids were uh, trying to get their head around Judas, one of my kids said, what's his name, Dad? I said, Judas. He says, oh, yes, Judas, the scariest. (laughs) The scariest one. Yeah, he was taking the money right from under Jesus' nose. And then the disciples got angry. There's, There's temptation all the way through Scripture, and the Bible doesn't hide that. The Bible doesn't seem to suggest that we've got a plain sailing. So the question I want to ask is we saw this morning how God comes upon a life and how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives life to your spirit and you become alive, you become a new creation, you become spiritually awake. The theological term for that is regenerated. You become a new creation and you start this journey. The question I want to ask tonight is how Does God transform you? How do you wrestle with this sin? How do you wrestle with this temptation? How do you get victory of it? I met a young man in your meeting this morning afterwards who said, I've just come off a nine-day high on drugs. A couple of weeks ago, I gave my life to Christ. I began to talk to him a little bit, and he said this. He said, you know, I've done this before, but this time I realize I have no chance. Let's go. God step in and rescue me. So he pitched up here this morning. I'm pretty sure he's here again tonight. He says he's coming. He's making this place home because he needs God. That's what he needs. And so the question then is how can we help those that are walking in faith? How can we help in terms of looking at this predicament? Uh, What do we say to a believer? You just got to find out how Jesus was and then you just got to grin and just by self-discipline, you get there. You put the fear of God in him. Tony said earlier, hell, fire, brimstone. Make it as scary as you can to frighten them out of sin. There was a young drummer. Drummers always look a certain way, don't they? Even in churches. And this drummer in our church, he, he, he plays in a screamo band He's got hair that, you know, over, over his face. He's got piercings all over, about six foot five. He came up to me. He's a delightful boy. He came up to me at the end of one meeting after I've been preaching, and he said this to me, uh, Mr. Crawford. Now, he, he never calls me that, so I knew something was up. I said to him, yes, uh, son. He says, uh, sir, he never ever calls me that. He said, I just want to tell you about a rumor in the church. I said, rumor? Now, I'm looking up at him. He says, the rumor is that I've fallen in love with your daughter. I've got a beautiful 16-year-old. I wasn't really picturing that as my son-in-law, to be honest. (laughs) I didn't want to be able to hang my clothes on his body, you know what I'm saying? It it wasn't what I had in mind. So he says, but don't worry, sir, don't worry, sir. I said, "Uh, why? He says, well, it's just a rumor. I said, good. He says, because somebody told me that if I dated your daughter, you would kill me. So I said, they were right, son. They were right, son. <laughs> now, now that, 
that might work for me in that case, but that's not a, a good method. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to threaten everybody into submission. <laughs> that's not really the Bible way. So, so what is the way? So what I'd like to do tonight is very simply, I'd like to look at temptation from various angles. What is it? And then how we get through it, because uh, we are saved. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants to change us. But there's some tripwires in the way. Let's have a look at them. So turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 1 and verse 12. James chapter 1 and verse 12. So what James does, he's writing to Christians here. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. But here's the catch. There weren't 12 tribes. There were only two. Because hundreds of years before, the other 10 never came back. So he wasn't talking to any specific people. He was talking to the, the people of God, right? And so while he's talking to them, he says, let me tell you about trials and temptations. That's how James, the younger brother of Jesus, starts this book. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. We're not talking temptation just yet. He's saying trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who goes through the trial. There is a blessing, and you might say, well, this, this guy sounds sadistic. You know, some people you go to, they welcome and seem to love all manner of tragedy. How are you doing today, sir? No, not so well. There's some guys in our church, I never ask that question, how are you? Because he tells me his diseases that he's had since his infancy. And so James is not like that. He's saying there is a blessing when the tidal waves of trial come and you go through those. As God says, I will bless you as you go through those. Somehow, the way we handle trial will affect our spiritual growth. Trial, we shouldn't be surprised. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, we shouldn't be surprised that they come. So they shake us up. This is why it's a, there's blessings in other arenas and for other reasons. But, but essentially, when you're going through a rough time, you see clearly. I'm not saying God sends the trial. But what I'm saying is that he turns all things to the good for those who love him. And he holds you through the fire. He holds you through the trial. And somehow one of the good things he does for you is you see the temporary for the t eternal. He shakes out your attachment to things that are not eternal. Makes us dependent on God. Then he moves to talk about temptation. So before we go there, let's just have a quick look at the difference between a trial and a temptation. Uh, well, trials essentially come from the outside. They roll in like waves. So financial trials or health trials or persecution from other people. Whereas temptation has its roots inside. They don't come from outside. They come from inside, essentially. So trials uh, may not involve sin. They may just involve hardship. But temptation can lead to sin. Trials are not really resistible. You can't really change world economies. You know what I'm saying? It just, they just roll over. But temptation can resist it. Trials happen from time to time. There will be seasons, sometimes years, where you just feel like everything's going perfectly. But temptation is 
always lurking in one form or another. What I'm going to do while we go through this, because what James does in the next four verses, he describes to us how temptation works. Jesus was tempted in every way which is common to man. So if you're saying, Grant, what are you talking about? This is not for me. Jesus was tempted. So are you. One of the ways I get tempted a lot because of the role that I'm in is to speak badly of or judge quickly people. And I'll tell you why. Is that when you're leading a church, you've got to make quick decisions. You've got to assess people. And, and sheep bite. Do you know that? Church people have a smile on their face on a Sunday morning, but I get hate mail. I've had three death threats in my life. And in Africa, that's serious. It's not... Um, you, you've got to look at that. And so... What happens is if you're assessing people all the time and, and every now and again you're catching the left jab, it is very tempting for me to speak, even if it's only to my wife on a pillow at night, judgmentally and critically about people. I can say it's governmental. I can say it's discernment. But there's a very fine line between discernment and gossip. Discernment and judgment discernment and uh, skinnering, I don't know if that's such a word in this country, about people. Let no one say, verse 13 says, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He says, before I go into temptation, let me just explain. God might allow you to be exposed to temptation, it's because he loves you, But he doesn't send it, he doesn't cause it, and neither can he be influenced by temptation himself. He says, let's just get that clear before we go any further. The devil might want to use temptation to kill you, but God will hold you through it, is what he's saying. But this is how it works. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation is essentially suggestion, a thought, plus desire that moves you, wants to pressurize you in a negative direction. So I could think, that idiot, that's the thought. The desire is, I'm going to tell my wife what an absolute idiot this guy is. I'm now feeling pressure. I've got a thought. And then this desire, as they mingle, they're pressurizing me in a certain direction. That's temptation. It's a mixture of a thought and a desire pressurizing you somewhere. Verse 15 says, Then desire, when it is conceived, still not yet sin, but this temptation, when this desire is rehearsed, And welcomed and contemplated about, it conceives inside you. So I think to myself, no, he's not an idiot. No, he's not. He's a numb brain. He's an absolute. He's a scumbag. That's what he is. This is why and that's why I work out my defenses. And while I'm busy welcoming the thoughts and the desires, 
Something is being conceived in me. And then it gives birth, he says, verse 15, to sin. When you act on that pressure, okay, Sue, I've got to tell you right now, and I unleash it upon her, and she's thinking, oh, God, help the church if this is the guy leading it, you know, and it's all the filth gets dumped on her. At that moment, it's given birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, you see, sin, you sin once, that's one thing. If you repent, you, you know God's forgiveness is present and available to you. But if you don't, unrepentant, repetitive sin, the thing can grow. He says it can become fully grown. It can like take over a portion of your life. Does it mean you're not safe? No, it doesn't mean that. You're still on your way to heaven. Does it mean you still look really cool in every other area of your life? Pretty much. But something is growing in that area of your life. And then he says, and when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. He's not talking to those that are heading to hell here. He's talking to believers. So he's not talking about you eternally separated from God, but that area of your life, whether it's an anger thing, death means the life of God is not present there. God himself is not active there. So you've rehearsed it, you've entertained it, it's conceived, you've given birth to it, now you haven't repented of it. It's got like a stronghold. The Bible uses that word stronghold. It's like a fortified opinion, a fortified thought. And as you Build this buttress of ideology and thought. Death comes there. It's amazing how he ends this. He reverts back to his original deception. He says, don't be deceived. The context here is verse 13. When he said, before I go any further, I've just got to deal with this deception. God is not the bad guy here. God is not the one who caused you to sin. God is not the one who changes Don't be deceived, he says. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation, no shadow. God didn't move when temptation came, you did. You see, this is the ultimate deception. The purpose of uh, the devil's intent to get you to sin is when there's no life, then you say, God doesn't love me. God's angry with me. God doesn't care for me. God, in fact, has allowed all this. So I'm leaving God. James says, don't fall into that. Don't fall into that. That's, that, that's when temptation has worked to its dreadfulest, most dreadful. When God becomes the villain at the end of it. And so... We're going to ask the question in the next 15 minutes. If that's how sin operates and that's how temptation and and God has promised Christ-likeness for us. God has promised to change us from one degree of glory to another more and more to the image of Christ. Paul is praying that you be transformed, that Christ be formed in you. How do we jump over this temptation? How do we get through it? Well, well, let me tell you, I think there are three forms, types of Christians that are in serious danger in modern churches. The first 
are those who put their trust in laws and rules. And big, big danger. The second are those who just so carefree that they think actually God will just sort it out in the end anyway. I love Kimmy's story. She describes the tussle that you see in extreme churches today. You've got some churches who who basically think that you're going to become holy by subtracting all sorts of fun things from your life. Thou shalt not touch, don't taste, don't feel, don't do this, don't do that. And the guy's sitting in this tiny little corner and he thinks he's holy, but he's miserable. And eventually he just breaks out of it and he says, I don't care, I'm, just, I'm going to heaven anyway. I might as well just go and do anything I like. And one moment, gagging over a toilet bowl, with all his money gone like the prodigal son, he barks one last time in the toilet and he says, there must be more than this. I can't believe I bought this. And then he rushes back to the church. I better go back to what auntie said and back to the church and back into the rules he goes. Surely not this. I want to kill myself. No, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> okay, the rapture. Do we believe in the rapture? And you see, you've got these corners I think there's a third category of people that are also in danger in churches. Those who are so self-sufficient think they've got it so sorted. They're never going to trip up with temptation. I don't really know why Jesus bothered about it, but I'm certainly not going to have a problem. And so let me have a look. Firstly, rules are not going to help you. There was a man... A couple of weeks ago in our church where this tragedy unfolded, an elder gentleman, and he hadn't dated for a long time, and uh, a godly man, good man, he met this young woman, much younger than him, and uh, he started to date her. Around about six weeks later, the whole thing broke up, and she came to me, and this is what she said. We subsequently walked it through with him, but this is what he did. When he dated her, he said, okay, now we've got to keep safe. He's a 60-something-year-old man. So he put a whole lot of rules in place. I'm not allowed to go in a car with you alone. Can't hold your hand. If I kiss you goodnight, my tongue is going to stay in the inside of my mouth. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. All sorts of rules. She said over 20 rules. But what he systematically started doing was breaking every single rule he set. He would weep and he'd repent. He'd reestablish all the rules, email them. We're going to get it right this time. This is a godly man, eh? And systematically break all his rules. You say, Ron, I don't understand that. Well, Paul speaks very straight into that in Colossians 2. Let me read it to you. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not touch. Do not handle, if you take it directly into his situation, do not handle her, do not taste her, probably not kiss her. Uh, Do not not touch. Okay, I'll leave that right there. Verse 22 says, referring to the things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. 
says, why are you putting your trust in something that's not eternal? Why are you putting your faith into something that's going to disintegrate before you? They will perish with use. You know why? Because they have human origin, those rules. These indeed, verse 23, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, ascetism, and severity to the body. Keep that body in check. Go and have a cold shower, sir. They presume, rules like this presume that law works. Rules like this presume that your heart and that your change of person is subject to laws and to rules. But they have no value, not a little bit of value, zip, zero, nothing. They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, the very opposite is true. So to understand the nature of the rules, you might say, well, God, why don't rules help? Surely uh, it's wise to put a whole lot of barriers in place. I'm not saying it's not wise. I'm just saying you don't put your faith in that. I'm not saying it's not prudent to run from the appearance of things that are not good, but you don't, that's not your God. When you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing, it's idolatrous. So why don't the rules work? Well, Romans 5, so I said Romans 7 makes this very clear. Verse 5, Romans 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Isn't that amazing? We had work in our members to bear fruit. So, so in other words... Your sinful passions were fast asleep. As soon as the law comes, they're aroused. You know that. If you, if, you wanted, if you want gossip to spread through Adelaide, you know how you do it? You go to a hair salon somewhere. And you say, I'm going to tell you a secret. And don't tell anybody. If you put that little rider on the back of it, guaranteed it'll get through Adelaide like wildfire. Why? Because suddenly someone thinks, ah, I've got this thing. And the possibility is I could tell them, but I shouldn't, but I should. It arouses the very possibilities. In the red dog, there's this Italian guy in the outback, and he loves Italy, an Italian coffee, an Italian woman, and he's getting on their nerves for these Aussies in the outback. And so these Aussies say to him, you say one more thing about Italy, we are going to bounce you, we're going to sort you out. He looks around, Italy, Italy, and they flatten him. They just like drag him out, and he spends the rest of the time talking to a dog. That's essentially what happens in that movie. So it's based on Romans 7 verse 5. That's what I think. What shall then we say? Then is the law sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known what sin is. I wouldn't know what it is to covet if the Lord said, don't covet seizing an opportunity through the commandment, through the rules, it gives you an opportunity to do that very thing. I can remember, in fact, I'm not going to read the end of that text, but it says that the very thing, it says in Romans 7, 
very end of that chapter, the very thing that was supposed to give life gave death. This American came to our church when I was about 19 years old. He was an incredible preacher. I remember he lived in Israel. That's all I remember about him. He preached about the eagle taking off over the cliffs. The mother kicking the chick out of the nest, catching it on its pinions and this flying. I remember sitting on my chair saying, I don't believe people can preach like that. I want to fly. He gives a salvation call or whatever. I ran to the front. I'm not that Arminian, but I ran to the front anyway. Put on my hands. He says, uh, I tell you what, to fly like this, you need to spend time with God. So, so what I'm suggesting is you take a vow, so everybody up front, to spend at least five minutes with God a day. So of course, I'm ready to do anything. I'm ready to dive off a cliff. I'm ready to do absolutely anything. I say, I can do five minutes a day. At that point, I was madly in love with Jesus. I used to have long devotional times. It didn't take two weeks. How long do you think my devotion shrunk to? Five minutes. And then I remember the day that I forgot. It was a traumatic thing for me. The law leaves you disappointed. And uh, I, I think if the, if the church, and so I love what Tony said up front, he didn't know what I was speaking on th- this evening, is that when a church says, we're going to scare you into righteousness and put laws and rules and regulations for you to live by, those very things are self-defeating. Those very things will arouse passions. Those very things will disappoint. Those very rules are destined to perish. And you are going to be disappointed. Now, it also won't help you to look down your nose and think, it's not going to happen to me. I, I'm above all this. The man who planted the church that I lead is a phenomenal fellow. His name is Ray Oliver. I remember speaking to him about uh, something that had happened in the church in our nation where someone had run off with a whole lot of money and committed fraud. And I said to him, how does this happen? It was a good guy and he just went astray. And so he said to me, hey, Grant, I don't really know. don't fully understand, but I do understand this is that you want God in your corner, always. And there's one way to lose God from your corner, is to get arrogant and self-sufficient. Because God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. I was at a friend of mine's the other day, and uh, he was having trouble with one of his elders. He, in fact, he only had one, the rest had left. And so he was, he was having big trouble. They were fighting, and so... Through the afternoon, I got the senior pastor to agree to humble himself and go to his friend and say, I'm sorry for what I've done in this. And his friend, likewise afterwards, they humbled themselves. This church was in deep financial trouble. That night, after they'd kissed and made up, well, hugged and made up. That night, an EFT came into the church bank account, the biggest in their history. The church began 25 years. What is that? Well, it's while there was arrogance and pride, it's like God wasn't in the corner. And, and so I, I think that humility is one way for sure that God helps us through temptation. How do you become humble? Have you ever seen a toddler that's arrogant? 
Have you seen a toddler stroll into an environment, look you up and down, and, and give you his opinion? If he does, it's, he's battling to stand up. That's what he's doing. When Jesus was asked this question about humility, he said this, unless you change and become like a child, unless you change, why is a child humble? What's a child's view? Kneecaps, right? When a child's looking out, he's under no illusions to how big you are and how small he is. He hears your deep voice, he hears his little voice. Unless you change, become like a child. I think a lofty view of God. I love the songs we sang tonight. A loftiness and the majesty of heaven. Let me land with this thought. It's God who holds you. You want him in your corner. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And Romans 8 tells us this, that it's by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S, that we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. You know that Holy Spirit that saves you and regenerates you and makes you a brand new creation? The idea in God is that you have a relationship with God through Him. Is that you walk your life with Him. And the Holy Spirit helps you to say no to ungodliness. He teaches you to crucify the flesh. You say, God, well, that sounds very mystical to me. Now, Paul says when he, he saw the Galatians were leaning on laws, he says, you started with the Spirit who has bewitched you. This achma, this journey into Christ-likeness, this... This circumnavigating and pushing through temptation is God working with you, in you. That's our hope. We want Him in our corner. I wonder if we could stand to our feet together, please. Can I end with one last story? I got two little girls, and about five years ago, they uh, needed to be spoken about, according to their mom, about the boys that were hanging around. So I took them to Song of Songs, and uh, this is what I said to them in the last chapter. You, you know, girls, there's a little girl in this book who hasn't got a dad, and her brothers are speaking for her until she's married. Aren't you glad you've got a dad who's speaking to you? She says, yes, I'm really glad my older one. The other one was looking out of the window, feeling very awkward. So I said, you know what the brothers say? They ask her a question. They use this metaphor and ask her this question. Are you a door or are you a wall? Using that as a metaphor. If you adore, they say, letting men into your garden. That's the picture. We're going to shut you away. She says, then they say, but if you're a wall, we're going to mount shields on you. She says, this is what she says in the end of Song of Songs. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm a wall. They say, good girl. 
couple of weeks ago, we're sitting around the dining room table. I thought that little daughter of mine hadn't been listening. She had her head out the window. Looked, oh, Dad, can you talk about this stuff? But she loves God. The Holy Spirit's been working with her. And she, this topic came up again around the dining room table. She says to me, Dad, do you remember four years ago? You told us a story about a wall and a garden. I said, yes. She said, you know, Dad, they're teenagers now, my daughters. Every evening, I pray that God helps me to be a wall. The Holy Spirit's at work, you see. Holy Spirit, I ask, whether the temptation is along the lines of anger or divisiveness or promiscuity, we throw ourselves at you. We ask you to come into our corner, come into our lives where we put our trust in rules and we put our trust in people, we put our trust in churches. Lord God, we ask you that your sovereign grace and your power would enable us to live and to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. We worship you, our lives. We consecrate before you. We give you praise. We give you honor, Lord God. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.